we're going to conclude our series on the promised one this morning. And um, I am, I am, I'm super excited about today's message. And um, I've, I've really personally, I, can you guys hear me? Okay. First of all, everybody hear me. Okay. All right. Um, the subject of Messianic prophecy has been one I've, I've talked to you guys about before. That's just been super fascinating for me and super nourishing to me. Um, but I'm not just doing this series, you know, just to make myself excited about things I've looked at before um, or remind us of things. There, there is a, there is a occasion to all this in the, in the sense that um, I feel like um, we've all been able to hear stories the last couple of years of, of a shaking, you know, that's gone on in, what we might call evangelicalism, um, Bible-believing culture, um, for good and for bad. Um, there, you know, many of us are familiar with the term of deconstructionism, that there's a spirit right now, so to speak, of intense reevaluation and in some cases intense repudiation, like wholehearted repudiation of of the claims of Christ and the claims of Christianity. Um, and then there's some that's that's more healthy, where there's just a reevaluation of what's cultural accoutrements around the truth. You know, things that um, have historically um, been additives to Bible-believing life and culture and worldview, but aren't essential to that. Um, so, you know, trying to be careful to not mix, for instance, American materialism or um, political power with what Christ claims and what Christ calls us to. And so some of the reevaluation has been really sad and, and awful because it, in some cases people have wholeheartedly rejected Christ. And in some of this shaking that's going on, it's healthier because people are able to increasingly dislodge what is Christ and who he is and his claims and what his spirit calls us to from kind of the, um, a culture that's additive and in some cases poorly additive when it comes to materialism or political power. So there's, um, so there, there's a need from my perspective to equip you guys to be ready to hang on, you know, as the wind blows. I, I want you guys to have a really good gra grasp of the branches of our faith to hold on to as things continue to get shaken in our country. And, and some of it's not simply going to be intellectual. Um, it's never just intellectual. You know, some of it's just personal doubts that we have in the face of of suffering and in the face of failure that we go through. Uh, God, where are you? Are you real? Some of it's temptation oriented where uh, the world is just easier and the stakes don't feel as important because we've lost a hold of how real perhaps God is and how real he's been to us in the past. And suddenly in the context of, of ways out of ways of life that are that are both much easier, but also uh, laden with shipwrecking sin. We we just want to put them aside. And and I've, you know, as a pastor, I've walked with people through doubt where 
and I've walked myself through doubt where the doubt is really a function of real intellectual crisis or real spiritual warfare and, and prayer and ingesting scripture and a lot of time and a lot of uh, transparency with people that you love and trust is important. And I've walked with people through doubt where the doubt was really masking just they just wanted to walk away from Jesus into sin. Um, they wanted to leave their wives. They wanted to live in ways that God um, calls them not to, commands them not to. And so their doubt was really helped by that. Um, and and I, we're all in, we all are in different places. We're all going to face different crises. But what I'm, what I've really been hoping for this series to do is to put in your hands compelling, provoking reasons to hold on to who Jesus says he is, who the Bible says he is, and to not give up on him. Because in all the ways I've just said, we're all going to go through shaking. We're all going to go through shaking, whether it's intellectual, whether it's social, whether it's personal temptation, whether it's personal suffering, we're all going to be shaken. And messianic prophecy and, and biblical prophecy is not the only tool but it's an important one peter calls it a light that shines in a dark place that we do well to pay attention to so as we close this message i just wanted to remind you guys why we've been doing it and what i'm hoping for from it and and really i wanted to remind you about that because today is is perhaps in my mind i i, I titled this sermon the greatest messianic prophecy in scripture um, and I put a little arguably in parentheses because I don't want, I don't want to get like in a debate war with folks about it. But, for, you know, this is a subjective thing. But from my perspective um, and, and I think anybody who is interested in looking, and I think you guys will probably see today, Lord willing, gosh, this is, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Daniel's timetable for the return for the coming of the Messiah. That was astonishing. Today, we're going to see a, a, a qualitative precision and specific exacting predictions about the person and the uh, the events and the meaning of those events about the per an exacting description of the person of the messiah of the central events surrounding the messiah and and what's also amazing the central meaning of those events the person the events and the meaning are going to come together in one passage of scripture that is, is absolutely mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. So today, again, I said my title is The Greatest Messianic Prophecy in Scripture, arguably, because I don't want to get in a, in a long debate with anybody <laughs> about it. Um, but I'm happy to talk with you guys about it if you want to. I just don't want to be contentious. Uh, we started this message series in the book of Isaiah, and that's where we're going to conclude. Um, and, and a bit of a reminder about Isaiah. Isaiah is written in... 700-ish BC, and it's written to the people of Israel who are throughout Isaiah's lifetime and for years before Isaiah's lifetime, forsaking God, forsaking their neighbor. They are a people, as you read Isaiah, giving themselves to all manner of dishonesty, bribery, uh, uh, extortion, selfishness, greed, hatred, cruelty, idolatry, and unfaithfulness to one another as well as to God. And so God fills Isaiah's books with prophetic warnings. Um, he is telling them, listen, I'm, I'm calling you guys back. Please stop what you're doing. I'm going to bring 
uh, judgment upon you unless you repent and turn. And he does this. God does this through the prophets for decades and centuries. So uh, he is calling them back, calling them back. Um, and he brings prophecy after prophecy, warning them. But he also makes these appeals for repentance. And he weaves within these prophecies, within these predictions, both for uh, the call for turning back and the warnings to come, and also uh, the hopeful prophecies about deliverance and salvation. Uh, he keeps weaving this theme that we talked about in the first message, which is basically him saying, he'll stop in the middle of these prophecies and say, pay attention to this. Can anyone else do this? Don't you know that I am who I say I am? Don't you know? Uh, and one of the famous phrases that I used in the first message, God says, I'm the God who knows the end of from the beginning. I know the very end from the beginning. In fact, God says, we'll look at a passage later. I control all things. I'm bringing the end from the beginning. And that's how I'm able to tell you the end from the beginning because I'm God and there is no other. In other words, he's saying to Israel, how can you harden your hearts against me? How can you forsake me? How can you give up on me when I show you that I alone am truly God in control of all of human history because I'm able to tell you what's to come and I'm able to bring to pass what's to come. You've seen that in the past through my former prophecies, Israel, and now I'm telling you about new things and you're going to see it happen again. So why are you forsaking me for false ways and false gods? But years go by and, and God's appeals are rejected. The people don't repent. And by the time of Isaiah, if you guys remember this from a couple of weeks ago, Israel's already divided into two kingdoms, two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is destroyed in 722 by an empire called Assyria. And the southern kingdom of Judah is left and they get spared for over a century more until the early 600s, late 500s. It's a little tricky because everything's backwards with BC, you know, AD. Uh, but even the southern kingdom is eventually, just as God predicted, judged for her sins and led captive by the Babylonian Empire around 586. And of course, you know, the Jews dealt with this. We deal with this this mindset of what's out there is going to hurt me. What's out there is going to destroy me. And I have to prepare my armies or I have to prepare my schemes or whatever. But th the truth was it, it wasn't really Assyria or Babylon that brought destruction upon Israel. God says it this way in, in Isaiah 51, he says, because of your sins, you were sold because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Israel had enemies and oppressors. We have enemies uh, and sometimes oppressors. And in this world, as Jesus promised, we're going to have trouble. Not all enemies and oppression uh, is God's judgment. Part of it is our lot as believers and as people that God is going to sanctify in a fallen world. But we all have enemies. But ultimately, God's word is consistently clear. Our, our greatest problem, our greatest problem is never what others do to us. 
Uh, it definitely causes problems. It definitely causes sufferings, but it's never the central ultimate problem of our lives. It, it, and it wasn't for the Jewish people. It wasn't Assyria. It wasn't Babylon. It wasn't Rome. And for us, it's not bosses and coworkers and Biden and Trump or COVID or et cetera. God can and will take care of all those things. Our greatest enemies are always much, much closer. Uh, again, God says it in Isaiah 59. He says, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins has, have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. So what God is saying through Isaiah and through his prophets throughout the Bible, throughout the whole entirety of Scripture, is this consistent theme that what separates man from God and from his help and from his mercy doesn't come from outside of us. Our, our greatest crisis is by far our own sin and the judgment that that sin elicits. This is what God says in Isaiah 42 after seeking again and again and again to draw Israel back and then bringing judgment. He says in Isaiah 42, who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to, be, to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned for they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. So uh, this is dramatically uh, provoking and sobering and heartbreaking language. And you know, we don't all have the bandwidth right now and, and haven't been immersed in the realities of Isaiah to be as affected as we we should be by what this is all describing. But what Isaiah is getting at in a way that maybe we can grab onto this morning is that God's salvation has to go much farther than Rome. It has to go much farther than COVID. It has to go much farther than Biden or Trump. It has to go much farther than our our co-workers oppression or 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 the suffering we 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 struggle with in our families god's salvation has to go much deeper it has to go into our hearts god where god has to bring deliverance from our sin from ourselves so that we can hope in him so that we can continue to hold his hand through the troubles that he will allow in this life and not give up on him so that we can not choose lesser gods of present comfort uh, and um, selfish ways in order to, to get ourselves through the, the few decades we have on here, but that we can with our hearts bless him and say, God, it, it, apart from you, I have no good thing. Um, and, and you're the one I need above all. And so by your grace, I'm going to keep following you. God has to do that deep work of heart change to make that happen in us. Um, and, and the good news in Isaiah is that although it's a book of terrible judgment, it's also a book of all conquering hope. Because Isaiah does prophesy not just the judgments, but God's saving work to to end our sin debt and to end ultimately our sin problem and to save us from ourselves. And so Isaiah promises deliverance and he promises deliverance, uh, not just 
hey, God's going to deliver you. He promises deliverance increasingly in the book in one particular way, deliverance that's centered around one particular person. Um, and if you guys remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I used the analogy of the Google Zoom. I've used it before. We've talked about messing out of prophecy, how, you know, if you if you do Google Zoom, you can click the button and you get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and things get they go from vague to more detailed. And, and that's the way messianic prophecy works in general in the Bible. And it's also the way that it works in Isaiah. As the book continues, this person, this deliverer becomes shockingly clear until we come to what I've argued is the greatest prophecy in all the Bible. And we first meet this person, this deliverer in chapter nine. We went through this a couple of weeks ago where Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is really our first big clear snapshot of this deliverer who's going to come, this child who's going to come and make everything right. Um, we have in this picture, a child, a son sent by God, He's called Prince of Peace. He's also called problematically, uh, especially for the Jewish reader in 700 BC. He's called Mighty God. Uh, he delivers Israel and makes her secure forever. So that's the first big clear snapshot. And, and this that passage would have to be one of the key passages that created this, what we called messianic expectation, uh, along with many other passages in Scripture this theme we've talked about before of God's going to send a man, a person who's going to come and deliver. And the Jews were waiting by the time Jesus came, they were waiting for a Messiah, uh, a one person to be their savior and their deliverer. We meet him again in Isaiah in chapter 11. We went through this verse, so I won't go, I won't go through it uh, in entirety, but you might remember, I just want to keep track with Isaiah's flow here. That Isaiah talked about um, the root of Jesse who would come and bring salvation. He's, he's a root of Jesse. That is, he's the source of Jesse. But Isaiah also calls him uh, a branch out of the stump of Jesse. He also comes from Jesse. So you might recall a couple weeks ago we talked about the problem of how can someone be both uh, the, the source of someone and then that same person's descendant. You guys remember that one. Um, and, and Isaiah says that, he doesn't just talk about him being a source and a root. Uh, he talks about him. He says he stands as a banner for the peoples, plural. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. And so as Isaiah continues with this picture of this deliverer, he, the, the deliverer's saving work expands from just Israel to the whole world, to all the nations, to the coastlands. Um, and it's it, it, it just grows and grows in, in, in this picture. We see that theme again and again, as you'll see in a second. Now, we don't hear too much about this promised deliverer in the middle of Isaiah. For many chapters in Isaiah, maybe for about 25 or 30 chapters, 
the the um the the picture gets vaguer uh, um and 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 then starting in about chapter 14 onward the picture tightens progressively tightens and so we start to see starting in isaiah 42 this new title for this deliverer and he's called the servant the servant some of you guys might have heard of the servant songs or the servant of the lord the servant of isaiah and and here's what the lord says of him starting in chapter 42 here is my servant whom i uphold my chosen one in whom i delight i will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations i will give you and then the lord says again expanding his salvation i will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So he's called a servant. God delights in him. He's going to not just bring uh, uh, salvation from Israel's enemies, but he's going to be a light. He's going to be a beacon for all people, not just Israel. He's going to heal or whether that's spiritually or physically, he's going to open eyes that are blind. Um, and then right away in verse eight, I want you to track this. That's right after this, right after those verses in immediately following in verse eight, the Lord does what I've said he does earlier. He calls us to pay attention to this prophecy that will prove that he alone is God through its fulfillment. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, like, see, come on, look, look, look. The former things have taken place. In other words, I have given you prophecies before that have been fulfilled. And now he says, and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. I, I just want to stop here to come back to this, this theme as we make our way to what I've said is arguably the greatest prophecy in the Bible, the Lord is calling us again and again to pay attention, to understand that he is proving himself, as it were, and that we must face his claims to be exactly who he says. I am the Lord. That is my name. There's no other God he's saying, and I'm proving it. So God's God's really putting a lot in these prophecies. I mean, you know, there, there, there must be a lot of money where his mouth is for these prophecies to be ways that God can say, hey, this is so miraculous. I am proving to you that I'm God. I'm proving to you that I'm God. And, and I hope we'll see that more and more as we go. And he says it again in, in chapter 43. He tells us exactly why he's bringing these prophecies. He says, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me was no God formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior. In all the shaking that's going on in Israel, in all the shaking that's going on in our lives, God is saying through Isaiah, I am giving you, I am giving you quality reasons to hold on to me pay attention pay attention to these reasons again we see it in verse 40 in chapter 46 i am god and there is no other i am god and there is no one like me i make known the end from the beginning 
from ancient times what is still to come. And I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Listen to this. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. So he is he is like, I, I don't know. Um, he is, I mean, I, I, hopefully th those words grab you. He is saying, listen, I am serious about this. I'm putting, as I said before, my money where my mouth is. In chapter 48, he says it this way. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. God is saying, I, I knew that you needed proof. I knew that your hearts were given to unbelief. I knew that your hearts are given to cynicism. I know that your hearts are given to trembling and doubt about me. I know the proclivity that you have in your hearts to not believe me. And so I'm telling you these things just like I did before. And then I'm going to bring them to pass. Verse five, therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say my images, that is my idols, my false gods brought them about. My wooden image and my metal God ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? <laughs> Can you guys hear God's heart here? We're not at the greatest prophecy yet. Okay, I, I'm just doing the setup work. But do you hear him pleading again and again? Take this seriously. And, and I feel that in my heart, and, and I, I, I want, wherever it's needed, I want you to feel that in your heart, that God is saying, I understand that you are given to doubt me and to not believe me, and you're given to the shaking that's going on all around you. And, and I am asking you to listen to me and to pay attention carefully to me, because I care about that, and I'm going to give you reasons to hold on to me. And then he says in verse uh, uh, halfway through this little chapter here, for this little passage, and he's and he's building up here. There's a there's a think of a song that just gets louder and louder and louder and louder. That's what God's doing right now in Isaiah. He's making the drums beat bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, he says here from now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today. So you cannot say, yes, I knew them. I knew this was going to happen. I didn't need to hear it from God. I could figure it out on my own. God is saying, no, I'm going to tell you things that you couldn't possibly predict, that you couldn't possibly foresee. In chapter 49, we hear from, again, from this servant that God says he's going to bring who will deliver Israel. The servant himself speaks. The servant himself speaks holy words of God. And here's what the servant, this is not Yahweh talking, although it will see in a way later it is Yahweh talking, but this is the servant of Yahweh talking. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb, to be his servant. And I believe this is Jesus speaking, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> and now the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, 
so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the sight of the Lord. And my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's a powerful thing to think about in scripture. God promising to bring someone in the future, promising to bring a deliverer in the future. And then suddenly, as God is prophesying, as God is telling Isaiah, that deliverer, who's still supposed to be coming in the future, speaks in the present. He speaks in the present. Who could that be? One who is Yahweh's servant and yet who is living 700 years or so before we see any signs of his coming. But here he is speaking to the Israelites 700 years before Christ took his first breath on earth. Let's keep going. In Isaiah 52, this theme of deliverance by the servant of the Lord, it reaches this, it reaches this crescendo where Isaiah explodes with joy and hope. He sees the deliverance of God coming on his people. He sees the effects of it. And there are big swaths of passages here that just begin to celebrate. But in verse 6, in the middle of this celebration, Isaiah 52, he, he says again, don't lose why I'm telling you all this. He says, therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. Don't lose the plot, in other words. There's a reason I'm telling you all these things ahead of time. It's not to make you feel simply to make you feel good about the future. I want you to know that I am God, that I really am who I say. In Isaiah 52, Yahweh pictures the good news of God's salvation going everywhere. This is a famous passage some of you guys are familiar with. How lovely on the mountain mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So this is the climax of joy. This is the climax of deliverance. Isaiah is banging the tiffany drums as hard as he can. He's washing the cymbals again and again and again. He's saying, look, deliverance. It's spring is sprouting up everywhere. Winter is dead. It's over. God is bringing his salvation to all of the earth. But in this same chapter, as we zoom in once more, this salvation as it unfolds takes a turn. Just at the height of this crescendo, there's this stark, different message that we start to hear about the salvation. So same chapter, just a couple of verses later, God brings back the story of the servant, the deliverer. And here's what he says. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man, 
and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Isaiah is saying that this servant comes in such a way that people don't easily accept him or easily expect him, that kings are going to shut their mouths because of him. They're going to be astounded when they find out who he is. And they're going to find out who he is. There's going to be a proclamation. This good news that Isaiah talked about is going to come to people. But when it comes, it's going to make people shocked. When it comes, in, in fact, in some people, it's going to be hard to believe. He says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So we want to ask Isaiah, why? This salvation that's going to sprout up, this deliverance that we're all been waiting for, that's coming upon the world, why will it make people shocked? Why will it make people question whether it's true? What will be so surprising about it? Isaiah goes on about the servant. He says, for he grew up before him that is before Yahweh like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will prolong, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see light 
and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. In the last verse, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, this was written some 700 years before Jesus Christ took his first breath. Isaiah prophesies precisely, specifically, exactingly about the central person, the central event, and the central meaning of Christianity. 700 years before Jesus Christ takes his first breath, Isaiah the prophet prophesies that the salvation that Israel needs, the salvation the world needs, is found in this person, in this event, and the meaning of that event, which perfectly describes Christianity. Both figuratively and literally, we might say that the Lord is dying for us to know him, that the Lord is dying for us to know who he is, that the Lord is dying for us not to be taken by all the shaking that goes on around us and inside us. Because every single word of this prophecy is fulfilled perfectly and only perfectly in Jesus Christ. He was born in obscurity, right? In a manger next to an animal feeding trough, no room in the inn, no beauty or majesty. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born with a crown in his head or a silver spoon. In Isaiah's passage, he's only famous enough among his people to be considered afflicted by God. Jesus was brought to a sham trial in the middle of the night and condemned to death. Isaiah says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Isaiah says he was silent before his shears. Jesus didn't speak a word to Herod, and he held his tongue before hot Pilate. Isaiah's servant is so badly beaten and whipped that any half-decent person would want to look away. That would perfectly describe what Jesus would look like after being punched and spat and scourged and having his head crowned with thorns and blood pouring all across his face. Isaiah's person is scourged. Jesus is scourged with a Roman whip. Isaiah's person is pierced. Jesus is pierced with the nails of crucifixion. Isaiah's person is poured out to death because of judgment and assigned a grave with the, with the wicked. Jesus was, was set to be buried with every other criminal that was crucified by the Romans or supposed criminal. But at the last moment, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea intercedes, takes Jesus' body and buries it in his own tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. It's exactly what Isaiah 53 says. And then Isaiah 53 says that this servant, after the anguish of his soul, after he pours out his life unto death, he sees the light of life. He's satisfied by the work of God, prospering his hands. Isaiah says that, that he's able to divide the booty with the strong. There's a resurrection, clear resurrection motif in Isaiah 53. And then, of course, uh, apart from the particulars, you know, Isaiah 
explains the meaning of it all. He doesn't just tell us about the servant. He doesn't just describe what's going to happen to the servant. But maybe most powerfully, Isaiah explains the meaning of it all. God himself, Isaiah tells us, has crushed the servant through those who also unjustly murder him. But God takes their evil deed and turns it into salvation for the nation and for the people by making this man a guilt offering. This servant offers his life for the sins of the nation that has rejected him. And in doing so, he heals them. He brings them forgiveness and he justifies them in God's sight. Isaiah even uses this term that Paul will take up again and again, the apostle Paul of justification. Isaiah says he justifies the many. That means he, he makes them righteous in God's sight by taking all their sins upon him. I mean, this this is just astounding. You, you, you couldn't write a better short essay or poem to describe Jesus, to describe his atonement, and to describe what Christianity says it means for the world. Immediately after this, this crescendo of Isaiah 53, 52-53, immediately following in Isaiah 54, there's just there's three words to start Isaiah 54. Shout for joy shout for joy the lord has done it the lord has done it you know just just a, a few closing comments here throughout the series i've i've appealed to us to see and recognize anew the, the miraculous nature of this book this book is a miracle it it is a miracle because it is God's book full of God's words. You can trust this book. Isaiah's, through, through Isaiah, God has been trying to say again and again to us through this series, through this morning, through the passage I've read, you can trust this book. You can trust this book. You can trust the one who wrote this book because the one who wrote it knows all things, controls all things, has almighty power to deliver you each day as you trust him even in desperation, even with a mustard seed of faith, even with the cry of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He has the power to deliver you and to sustain you. And in this book, God has revealed that power, that salvation to deliver you, to sustain you, to be his servant, Jesus Christ. He has told us that through Jesus, everyone who trusts in him is justified, forgiven. He has told us why. 700 years before Jesus took a breath because he took the nails for our sins, because he was crushed for our transgressions, because we stand justified, considered blameless, righteous before God. Folks, you could present the gospel through what I just read to you today and not open a word of the New Testament. You could present the gospel. I don't want to go too far down this road, but I, I do want to mention it. It's a provoking reality that in, in Judaism, in the synagogues, they have a liturgy. If you'd grown up in mass or Catholic or Anglican, if you'd done high church, they have a calendar of readings every year. So they have a, a set pattern of readings they're going to do, Old Testament, New Testament, gospel reading. And they're set ahead of time. And in, in the synagogue, they have that same pattern where they have readings scheduled ahead of time. And in, in late summer, early fall, they go through about seven chapters in Isaiah. They go through Isaiah 49, 50, 
51, 52, and they stop halfway through 52. And they don't read the last servant song in the synagogue schedule. They skip everything specific that could be called the story of Jesus Christ dying for the sins of the nation. And they resume it after it's done in Isaiah 54. And I'm not saying this to, um, to bring condemnation on the synagogue reading schedule. You know, if, if that's a spiritual thing, none of us would want, would want to see that and believe that apart from God turning our hearts to want it. But I'm saying, according to one historian I read, it became a problem in the synagogue reading schedules a long time ago. Because when you read Isaiah 53, if you know anything about Jesus Christ, you cannot help but see him. And so they just don't read that. Each year they go Isaiah 49, 50, 51, 52, stop. And they jump over 52, they jump over 53 and they come back to Isaiah 54. And it's heartbreaking because God through Isaiah has tried so hard to say, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to bring what's going to happen. You can trust me and look, look and see. But by God's grace, each of us this morning can hear and we can look and we can see God is exactly who he says he is. May, may his grace help us to believe he does exactly what he says he's going to do. I was trying to process through application points, you know, to close with this morning. And, and I think the biggest application point that I'd want for your hearts to embrace and my heart to embrace this morning is just is primarily like worship, like worship. To just be in awe. And of course, in that worship to have hope, to depend on this one who offers himself to us today again. He's calling us to recognize that he has dealt with our sin debt in his son. Every day he's calling us to recognize he has dealt with our sin debt in Jesus, that we do have a sin debt, that he takes sins very seriously, but that he's dealt with that sin debt. He is the holy God who takes our sins seriously, and he is the incredibly merciful, loving God who deals with all of those sins and has dealt with them fully and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. And what's left for us to do is to keep hoping in this and to keep relying on the grace that he gives us every day to keep walking with him. The grace that only his spirit can give us every day as we believe his words, as we trust in what he said, as we put our hope in who he says he is and what he says he does, his Holy Spirit gives us new grace each day to follow him, new power each day to follow him because he's not mad at us for our sins anymore. Not in the judgment sense. He is not going to withhold grace and mercy for us that we need to keep walking with him. He has no reason to withhold grace anymore. This servant in Isaiah 53 has taken away every reason. So maybe my biggest application point is just hope and awe, you know, hope in him through awe at what he's done. And, and I do have, a, I do have a, a, a bit more precise points. I, I, I want to challenge all of us and challenge myself to take this book more seriously. 
that in the midst of the shaking that's coming, the shaking that's already here, in the midst of the shaking that's all around us and our in our cell phones that scream out to us all day long for their attention, are we paying attention to this? Am I paying attention to this? Are you paying attention to this? So I, I have a specific application to start this month. You know, I, I thought New Year's resolution. Let's just do a new month resolution. Let's bite off something we can test and see with a little bit less intimidation maybe to start this month and say, I want to challenge myself to honor the miracle of your word, God, in a specific way. So I, I invite you to join me just for the month of January to just say, I am going to commit to 30 minutes a day, every day in your word and in prayer, if possible, before, if possible, before you do anything else, before your phone, before your newsfeed, uh, to make a commitment that you'll go to bed early enough to get up early enough to spend 30 minutes in his word before you do anything else. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. See what God does with that. If that's not already a regular part of your lifestyle, just take January and just say, Lord, I want to live. I, I want to invite you into my life in a fuller, more consistent way than I have before or that I have been in a while. So I, I want to invite all of us to honor the promises in this word, the miracle that it is and the food that it is for our soul. You know, that kind of thing isn't legalism. It, it's like, I, I'm not, when I say, let's do this, this one month challenge, I, I'm not asking any of you guys or myself to earn anything. It might be, it might feel that way, especially if we're brought up in a legalistic culture or legalistic parenting, which to some degree we all have, but you can think of it like this. We're in a desert and God is inviting us to drink water. I mean, and that's what it is. Like we're in a desert. Every day we wake up in a desert outside us and inside us spiritually. And God is inviting us to drink water. None of us would, would come downstairs and have breakfast and say, I have fulfilled my obligation, right? If it was a good breakfast, we would just say, oh man, I was hungry. I didn't know how hungry I was maybe. And I needed that. And I got to have that meal. That's really what it is to come to God in his word and to come to God in prayer. It's not legalism. It's getting nourishment. It's staying alive. It's feeding off the goodness that he wants to give us. So, yeah, I just want to invite you. Join me. I'll, I'll send uh, something out on Tuesday that will, you know, a couple of guides. I've already got them on the web that, that will help you guys if you don't know how to do this that will help you figure out how to set up a, a devotional time in the morning. Um, I'll send you a prayer that, that I've used that you can use. All that stuff's been available before. You might have your own history of, of devotional life and, and you don't need help doing that. That's okay. You can go back to your own history if you aren't. But I just want to invite you to a, a, a challenge in January every day uh, to get up 30 minutes earlier than you might normally if you're not doing it now and commit to make that in January. You know, I was thinking that maybe just one month is 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 a short enough time frame for for those of us who might be intimidated by that kind of thing to jump in and do it. Uh, if you want to do it, please text me. I'll create a list and just to encourage we'll we'll text each other and and we'll just talk about, you know, how we've been doing what what God's been doing through it, maybe ways that we could use help knowing what to study, what to pray about. Um ways that God's meeting us or ways that we're struggling, but let me know and we'll just create a little text uh, run through the month of January. Another way I just want to encourage you is, is, is prayer on Tuesdays. 
to come, come at least once a month in the month of January. I mean, I'd love you to just decide, you know, this January, I'm going to come every Tuesday, but, but at least once a month in January, just come and see what it's like to pour out your heart with others. It is such a beautiful time to be with each other and to be praying and to be before God's word together and to just come and pour out your heart for personal repentance, for new strength for your loved ones, for the lost in your orbit, come. Just to commit to come through the month of January, or at least once, and, and, and join in and experience that fellowship. So those are two specific applications for you to try out a couple of things and, and see if God, as he usually is, he, he just won't, he's just a great giver, and, and see how he won't be outgiven and and he won't be out honored the time that you give him the the attention you give him the honor that you give him in the time and the prayer he won't be outpaced by you he he won't you won't beat him in honor and in giving he will just give you more and honor you more for the time that you give him one way or another but whatever you do whatever you do i i pray and hope that this series has given you a deeper conviction that that this book is truly god's word that it really is a miracle that Jesus really is God's Messiah and that he really is worthy of your time and attention each day. Let me pray for us to close. Lord, the word shaking is, is just been in my heart all morning as we've gone through this message. You are shaking things. Um, you're shaking things so that what cannot be shaken will remain and what can be shaken will be taken away. What should be taken away will be shaken. Lord, you are the God who prunes. You're the God who proves and uh, tries us in the furnace so that we come out purer, so that we come out stronger. And Lord, I just pray that, that the words that you've given us about our Messiah, about this servant of the Lord, would be burned into our heart. And that when everything feels like it is shaking, and everything feels like it is just like a tornado in our lives, pulling us this way and that, we would stake our hearts deep down in the soil of your word and say, God has spoken and God has brought it to pass. God has not left himself hidden from us. He has made it clear who he is. He has foretold it. He has done it. This is the God in whom I hope. This is the God I can hang on to when temptations come and make me want to bail on him. When ideologies come and make me want to deny him or question whether he's even real. You have given us, Lord, strong reasons to keep hoping in you. Lord, please let us not forsake you. Let us not leave you and be destroyed. I pray that everybody hearing my voice would make it across the finish line, having not forsaken you, but Lord, being faithful to the end, enduring and running into your arms on the day when we meet you face to face. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.